This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampike Pagan. Joining me today is author Harlan Lieber, who's here to talk to me about one of my favorite movies, Citizen Kane. He's written two books on the subject and probably knows more about the movie and its making than most anyone else. Great. I'm sorry. Hello, my name is Harlan Lebo. Well, I'm a senior fellow at the, the USC Annenberg's Center for the Digital Future in Los Angeles, and I've been a writer for the last 30 years. And I've been very fortunate to write books about uh, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, and The Godfather. So I was going to split this story up into three parts. I was going to talk about Orson Welles, I was going to talk about William Randolph Hearst, and I was going to talk about the film. But let's start with Orson Welles, because I have this image, and it's based entirely on that now famous quote, which he once told an interviewer about how everyone told me from the moment I could hear that I was absolutely marvelous. Mm -hmm. And I have this image of this young, cocky, wonder boy with little respect for anyone or anything else. Is that accurate? Well, I think the the Wonder Boy part is, and the creative genius part is, he was a very strong creative personality. He certainly liked and respected many people and worshipped people. I mean, John Ford was one of his idols. Um, So he was a tremendously gifted creative person, whether it was painting or writing or radio, or theater, and then that moved all onto onto film. Uh, And of course, by happy coincidence, he was also tall and very handsome and had a beautiful voice. So all of those things added in. But but cocky, absolutely. Incredibly self-confident, absolutely. But quite respectful of most people, as long as they didn't get in his way. (laughs) What did he think of the studio system at the time? I think as a system... He probably didn't like it any better than anyone else who was a high, a very powerful creative talent like John Ford or Howard Hawks. There, it was a, a real love-hate relationship. People like them uh, realized that it was a frustrating, maddening experience because the effort to make films that appealed to the broadest audience was what the studios wanted to do. And that was all handicapped, of course, by censorship in Hollywood, uh, which kept a very tight, tight rein on what anyone could be making films about. But on the other side of that is the fact that it, the studios created these gigantic pools of incredible talent, wonderful technicians and craftsmen and writers and designers and photographers who were the best in the world and probably still are the best in the world, some would say. Um, and that's what Wells really appreciated. And he always thought that. I mean, he respected technicians. He respected the creative people around him. He felt very strong connections with, with uh, actors. Uh, so all of that is a happy byproduct of a system that did not function very well for people like Orson Welles. But for at least one film, and for some others too along the line, but it's certainly for Citizen Kane, you have this incredibly talented, imaginative, young personality uh, diving headfirst into this pool of creative talent and collaborating with them. And that's what created Citizen Kane. So tell me about 
Orson Welles coming into the studio system, coming in to make, um, I guess, what was called RKO 281. It's it's interesting because he's had no real experience of that at all. I mean, he's coming off, I guess, tremendous success with War of the World, something that could have completely ruined him but didn't. And suddenly he's thrown into this this new world where he knows little to nothing about. Right. He uh, was quite experienced in radio in a very short time. I mean, remember, he was, at the time of War of the Worlds, he was 23 years old, which is the fall of 1938. He had been involved in radio production for only a couple of years, theater for not much longer, at least on the Broadway level. But he had probably made, by that point, hundreds of radio programs, either as an, as a, an actor, a character actor performing, or as a writer, or as a producer himself, including his own radio program, Mercury Theater of the Air. So he was quite involved at that level, immensely talented as a creative writer, director, ed, uh, editor, and actor in both theater and in radio. So it was a natural step to move to Hollywood and to make motion pictures, but a completely different kind of a step in terms of techniques, in terms of putting things and ideas and people in front of cameras. And all of that uh, had to be learned and learned very quickly. And he certainly uh, learned very quickly. But where did the trust come from? I mean, everything I read about studios is that they're a naturally suspicious controlling lot. Man, even more controlling then. Uh, there, there, there was no – the trust was contractual. Uh, Orson Welles had no – he says he had no real interest in coming to Hollywood at that point. Uh, it really was the next place for him to go. Uh, he had – things had sort of tapered off for him in, on Broadway. And he could he wanted very much to use any money he earned in Hollywood to go back and create theater. Uh, as it turned out, he stayed in movies for most of the rest of his life. But uh, he uh, he held out as long as he could. He did not want to do this. At least that's how he remembered it. Uh, and what he really wanted was not as much the money as he wanted authority. And RKO kept sweetening the deal more and more. And they finally gave him a deal that really was, in the words of another, another movie, um, an offer he just couldn't refuse, which is that he had near total creative control, not complete creative control the way has been portrayed over the years, but certainly much more than anyone else in Hollywood at the time. There was no other producer, director, or actor in Hollywood working within mainstream Hollywood at the time who had anything like the creative control he had. And that really boiled down to he had right a final cut to the movie. Uh, as long as he met certain limits about budget, uh, then he would be able to hold on to the final cut of the film. And that was really unheard of. So it wasn't trust, it was contract. And that's where it all came from. And uh, RKO, they wanted him to succeed. They wanted him to make money. He was part of the new regime at RKO that was led by George Schaefer, bringing in talented people, many of whom had, did not have experience in Hollywood. And Wells was one of them. So let's talk about William Randolph Hearst. Um, I think a lot of people know the kind of media mogul he was, but just paint me a picture as to just how much power and influence he wielded. He, there were certainly other 
powerful newspaper owners and media. Well, it was the press then. It wasn't media, but the certainly the media of its time. He was probably the singular figure, figure who was most prominent. He was the Rupert Murdoch of his age, probably more influential and more powerful because his organization was even more ruthless and irresponsible in many of its journalistic practices than anyone today that we could imagine. Uh, they, Hearst's organization really created sensationalist tabloid journalism in its own way, even in its mainstream papers. They would pick and choose their battles. They would choose causes to support or fight. Um, and as a result, Hearst was incredibly influential, very powerful. And as an individual personality, very high profile in 1920s, 30s, and 40s America. Uh, he was very prominent in Hollywood circles. He had his own production company. His mistress, Marion Davies, was a prominent comedic actress. Uh, and he was known for hobnobbing with celebrities and having them as guests at his home in Beverly Hills, as well as his mountaintop estate in central California called San Simeon. So it was... So whose idea was Citizen Kane? Was it, was it Orson Welles or was it Herman Mankiewicz? It came out from both of them. It came from their discussions. Herman Mankiewicz and John Houseman went out into the desert of California to a place called Victorville to write the script for Citizen Kane, or at least the first draft. But before they went, there were dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of hours of discussions between Mankiewicz and Welles about people, characters, the types of subjects they could do, uh, powerful people. And they came around to the idea that they really wanted to explore a powerful person. And they started nosing around to think, who could they write about that was a powerful person that would be interesting? Well, politicians, of course, are difficult because you have to identify them by name. Um, there are other powerful people in industry. They even considered doing um, Howard Hughes as a possible character. But it just didn't seem that that interesting to write about oil and oil wells and his work in aviation, at least at that point. Uh, and had they done a movie about Howard Hughes, it would not have been played by Orson Welles. It would have been played by Joseph Cotton, who in Citizen Kane went on to be he did was he appeared in Citizen Kane as Kane's best friend, Jed Leland. So they eventually circled around because of the tone of the day, they circled around to newspapers and newspaper publishers. And there was no question that William Randolph Hearst came up early in the discussions. He certainly was the most powerful newspaper publisher of his day. Uh, Mankiewicz knew him well because he had visited his home many times, both in Beverly Hills for William Randolph Hearst's famous costume parties. They had lots of costume parties. And Mankiewicz had also been a guest at San Simeon, the, the mountaintop estate. So it would have been hard for someone as self-destructive and, and antisocial as Herman Mankiewicz was capable of being. A very charming person on one hand, but also capable of being a very angry, very vengeful person on the other to circle in on William Randolph Hearst as one of the principal people who Charles Foster Kane was based on. And that certainly is true. There are many people who, who are represented in the character of Charles Foster Kane, but it's, you know, there's no question that William Randolph Hearst is one of the principal ones. So let's talk about, let's talk about the battle over Citizen Kane, because as the story goes, William Randolph Hearst kind of discovers that this movie is somewhat loosely based on him. And for lack of a better phrase, he loses it and uses 
I guess, everything available within his power to try and stop this movie from happening. Yes, he had an organization that was that was geared to protect. They called him the chief. If you called the if you called Mr. Hurst the chief, you were in his inner circle. So the chief needed to be protected, and his organization was was ruthless enough and morally bankrupt enough in many ways that they would take they would take off after someone like Orson Welles and RKO and the motion picture industry in general to try to protect the chief. The fact that by focusing their attention on Citizen Kane, on on Charles Foster Kane as a character as being a caricature right or wrong of William Randolph Hearst just made it all that much more public. The story was covered at length in the national media and had Hearst and his people not done this, had they not tried to stop the film, had they not tried to have it destroyed, if they hadn't tried to blackmail Hollywood by threatening to write expose stories about powerful people in Hollywood, none of, none of this would have happened. And the film would have gone down and been what it should have been, which was a very successful film at the time and a wonderful character study. And William Randolph Hearst would have been one of the people that might have been considered as a possible character. So they red baited what we call red baiting in the United States, where you, you do a, an investigation of someone's communist sympathies. And of course, Wells is a very liberal person. He was not a communist, but the Hearst organization launched an investigation of him. They cooperated with the congressional committees that were quite active in the 1940s and fifties, looking at communism in Hollywood. They provided information to that committee. They, they investigated Wells draft status during world war II. They tried to discredit him and his involvement in liberal causes. Uh, and then they encouraged liberal, they encouraged conservative organizations like the American Legion uh, to, to attack Wells and be critical of Wells and his radio broadcasts. And then Hearst's publications covered the protests. So they created the protests and then covered the protests. It's like Charles Foster Kane said, if you make this, the headline big enough, it makes the story big enough. Well, that's exactly what Hearst did. So it was an organization that described itself as standing for genuine democracy and used words like character and quality and an American paper for the American people on its masthead. Yet it really was a truly dark chapter in American journalism. And did Wells not expect any of this? Did he not realize the extent of William Randolph Hearst's power? Or was he just arrogant, too arrogant to notice? I think he was probably expecting some level of fuss over the film. But I think he was also not really worried about it. He was just trying to get the movie made and didn't think that it would be anything like this, where they would go after him that strongly. Because there are certainly other people who could have been just as upset. You know, there are executives who are Joseph Pulitzer or the people who work for Pulitzer's papers after you know, Pulitzer passed away. Um, there are people in in industry, uh, in music, in other places in publishing who could have just been just as upset. So we, we all think of it in terms of a story about Hearst. And visually, of course, it is a story about Hearst when you think about the big house on the hill in Xanadu and some of the things that are quoted from directly from Hearst or his family that were used in the film. But I don't think, answering your question, I don't think he expected nearly this level of protest. 
And what was RKO's reaction? I'm sure the studio must have been freaking out. Well, the studio was trying to figure out what to do about the movie. Uh, remember, when, this, when all of the actions against Citizen Kane as a film started, they also were, RKO was hit just as hard. On January 9th, when Luella Parsons finally did see the film and reported back that, yes, indeed, Citizen Kane was about William Randolph Hearst, that day, every Hearst organization in the country was ordered to remove all mention of Citizen Kane and Orson Welles and RKO and every RKO film from their publications. That happened the same day. So RKO was attacked directly and immediately. And that wasn't lifted for almost two weeks. So there were two weeks worth of reviews and features that never appeared in Hearst Papers that would have been very important to RKO. So the studio was threatened. Hollywood itself was threatened. Luella Parsons made it very clear, Luella Parsons being the uh, lead film columnist for the Hearst organization, that if something wasn't done about Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, that Hearst Publications would suddenly start carrying incriminating expose stories about motion picture stars and, and executives in Hollywood, stories that were, may have been true but were conveniently not covered as favors to the, to the uh, Hollywood studios. So, uh, yes, RKO was quite, quite puzzled by what to do about this, and it went back and forth for, for weeks with them trying to decide what to do, whether they were going to release the film whether they were going to shelve the film or whether they were going to accept the offer that was made within one part of the Hollywood circle to buy the film and destroy it. I remember reading somewhere that Orson Welles and Citizen Kane were actually booed at the Academy Awards. Is that true? Well, in part. I mean, there were certainly – that's always been the way it's been built up, that – Yes, there was booing when Citizen Kane's name was mentioned. But there were just as many people who were apparently, and I've talked to people who were there, uh, just as many people who were shushing the booers who were quite supportive. Wells had a huge base of support in Hollywood. Once the film started to be shown, most directors were supportive of him, most, most influential actors. The problem, I think, really occurred, and the booing probably occurred because it had been made clear when he arrived in Hollywood, there was a big deal made out of the fact that he wasn't going to use any Hollywood talent on screen, uh, any at all. And, of course, he did use some, but almost all of the principal roles in Citizen Kane are, from, are people who came from the Mercury Theater or from New York and were not Hollywood regulars. So how do you find new information, more so when most everyone who was involved in this movie is dead or really, really, really old? Well, I did a coffee table book about Citizen Kane for the 50th anniversary 25 years ago. Can't believe it, but it's 25 years. And I was fortunate enough to talk to four of the key people who were involved in the making of the film that, that time who were still alive. William Allen, who played the reporter who was searching for the secret of Rosebud. Uh, Ruth Warwick, who played Kane's first wife, Emily Monroe Norton. Richard Wilson, who was one of Wells' longtime confidants and a... Uh, one of his producer, his associate producers, and Robert Wise, the Academy Award-winning director, who was a staff editor at RKO at the time and edited Citizen Kane, was nominated for an Academy Award for Citizen Kane. And then more recently, I talked with the family of Catherine Trosper, who was Wells' assistant at the time and actually just passed away in March. She just missed her 101st birthday and learned many more things from her. So I was fortunate enough to be able to talk to that 
at least those five people. But also remember that as much as has been written about Citizen Kane between criticism and compendiums reviews and interviews about it and all sorts of things, no one other than my coffee table book about Citizen Kane has ever been a nonfiction narrative about the making of the movie. This is the first time there's ever been a making of book for the public about Citizen Kane. So there's plenty of information out there about about from Orson Welles' own files and from Hearst's own files. But because I was the first one writing a book like this, it was all prime territory. And there are some wonderful people out there in the United States who can help with this sort of thing. The one thing that really surprised me, uh, I was looking at the old New York Times review from 1941, yes. and they're incredibly effusive about this movie. And it's interesting because I think it's rare that a movie – that a great movie is recognized in its time at the point of release. In this case, it was not only recognized as a great film. I think it was recognized as a milestone in cinema. The reviews were almost, almost unanimously, overwhelmingly positive. Huge acclaim for the movie, for the acting, for the cinematography. People knew this was a special film. And they whatever whatever criticism there was of the contract Orson Welles had when he came to Hollywood was all thrown out when they saw Citizen Kane. The one possible bit of criticism of the film actually was voiced in the New York Times three days later when Bosley Crowther, the critic for the Times, went and did a reappraisal of Citizen Kane. He went back and watched the movie a second time and wrote about it again because the one thing about the movie that puzzled him was the character of Charles Foster Kane as being hard to understand and explain. But that's actually one of the great, the great strengths of the film. And I think we understand male leading uh, characters in films better now. But people just didn't understand why you could, you could put Charles Foster Kane into a film and not really explain his motivations. Because no one... No one in the film understands why Charles Foster Kane does what he does. No one who sees the movie understands why he does. But what you do see is the consequences of his actions. How through his search for love and, and friendship led to his complete disasters for him on every level in his life. So that was the puzzle that Bosley Crowther was trying to work out and some other reviewers were too. But other than that, it was considered a masterpiece, a literal masterpiece of the time. Harlan, I've got one more question for you, and this is just a little bit of trivia. Uh, sure. Because in that movie, in that movie, RKO 281 by HBO, um, they have a theory as to what Rosebud means in the William Randolph mm -hmm. Hearst context. Was yes. that true? Well, <laughs> the, there's, there are several different interpretations of what Rosebud could mean. One of them was that it was Hearst's nickname for Marion Davies' private parts. Um, that has certainly been voiced by several people who Herman Mankiewicz had talked to. Uh, of course, if Herman Mankiewicz wrote the original script for Rosebud, being an inside friend of the Hearst family, and he used that term, it would have been a, that would have been his professional suicide to do that, and it would have been made very clear to everyone involved that they were indeed writing about Hearst. But uh, more recently, Mankiewicz testified. He died in 1953. So, but in, in a lawsuit in the late 40s, he testified that Rosebud represented his interest in, of all things, horse racing, which 
uh, there was a, a horse in the United States that won the Kentucky Derby called Old, Old Rosebud, and Mankiewicz bet on it early in his life, and he remembered that, and that's supposedly one of the reasons why Rosebud was named, the sled was named Rosebud. Uh, the other story that he told his son that Frank Mankiewicz relayed years later was that Rosebud was the name of his of Mankiewicz's bicycle when he was a kid. So <laughs> they're all interesting. The point being they're at some in some level they all represent points out of Mankiewicz's past or out of Hearst's present in case of the one that you were talking about and mentioning, yes. That was author Harlan Lebo. You can find his book, Citizen Kane, A Filmmaker's Journey in All Good Bookstores. Read the book and go watch the movie. You will not be disappointed. This is Bookmark, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.